Awesome. Well, happy Sunday, everybody. It's good to be here. And uh, happy Sunday. Yeah? Yeah? If you've never been here, some, sometimes that echoes back. You know, I say happy Sunday, you say happy Sunday, and then somebody says, it's not a happy Sunday. I don't know. Uh, I think it's a good Sunday, and I haven't, uh, haven't had the privilege of sharing with you in a few weeks. I took the uh, last five Sundays off from preaching, and uh, oh man, I got a lot stored up and ready. Who's ready? All right? You give a pastor five weeks off, and it's just like, his tank overfloweth. Um, no, I, I, it, it's been a fun summer looking at a, at a variety of different texts. We've been spending the year Corinthians, and um, the last five weeks having these guest speakers come in and share from these uh, various texts that we're looking at and various topics as, as summertime goes, people are in and out and coming and going and things like that. So uh, if you've missed a week this summer, don't worry. It's not like they all join together. Uh, a lot of these messages are very standalone in their nature this summer. And it's awesome to just hear a variety of voices and people. And if you've been coming the last five weeks, you're like, who is this guy talking? I haven't seen him. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm the senior pastor of our church and, uh, and it's good to meet you. If I haven't met you, uh, let's meet, right, uh, before you head out today. Um, this morning, uh, as we continue this idea of, of looking at Corinthian passages and, and this overall heading that we have for the whole series, for the entire year, is it's complicated. And because as you read First and Second Corinthians, you realize he hits a lot of subject matter that is very complicated, not easy to grasp and understand. We've been hitting a variety of different topics, and this morning we're going to hit this idea or this topic of the resurrection. And we talk about the resurrection, and it seems like, yeah, that everyone should agree on the resurrection. And we're not just talking about the Easter Sunday resurrection. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, you'll see the length of this passage that we're going to cover today, 12 through 58. Uh, so 46 verses that uh, we didn't read this morning. Normally, we would read the entirety of the passage, and you would uh, just kind of soak in that for a moment. Uh, to read 46 verses would have been more than a moment, right? It'd be like, all right, it's lunchtime now, uh, and now it's time to preach. And, and so what we're going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this passage, but I'm going to encourage you this week to go back to this passage and reread it yourself. Soak in it. Read it. Uh, and, and process it, because this is a passage in our Bibles where if you use uh, a paper Bible, right, remember those? Remember paper? Uh, there's parts of those paper Bibles where those pages would stick together. You remember those, right, where you'd grab your, your, your Bible and you'd flip the page and it would like stick and it would pull another page or two with it? Well, this is one of those sections because chapter 15 is dealing with resurrection and it's not just the Easter resurrection and so it gets a bit confusing. And, and when we hit confusing parts of our Bible, what do we tend to do? Skip right over it, right? Go right past it. Let's get to the part that makes more sense. And, and you ever read your Bible and been confused? Hands up. Yes, everybody, right? We hit parts of the Bible, and it's like what I'm processing now, watching some of the Marvel content that Disney Plus is churning out. I watch Marvel movies and Marvel shows, and my kids love it too, and we just we rally around it. Our dog, we got a new puppy. Its name? Marvel. Right? We love Marvel movies, uh, but I'll tell you what, Marvel's getting a little crazy. Not the dog, the content. Disney is getting a little out there. I'm watching Doctor Strange like my brain hurts. I don't understand the, the idea of multiverse. What in the world? Loki, 
I watched six episodes of Loki, and I'm more confused. I'm supposed to understand this stuff. I'm supposed to be into this stuff, and I kind of want to just go back to Iron Man, where he lit, guy made a suit and blew stuff up, right? Can we just go back to that? Like, forget the multiverses and the comics and all these weird things that are happening. And, and sometimes when we read a passage of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 15, it gets confusing. And today, some of us might feel a little phrase that I'm going to coin of resurrection confusion. Because when we think of resurrection, what do we think of? Easter. Easter is the first thing that most of us are going to think of. But there is another resurrection that we're going to talk about, a future resurrection. And as we talk about it today, some of us are going to be like, wait, wait, what? And we're going we're gonna to feel like that image right there, that our head is just like spinning, right? Like I was watching Doctor Strange. Wait, wait, what? Multiverse, what? And you're going to say, resurrection, What? Because Paul, in this chapter, is writing about a resurrection that is going to happen in the future. A future resurrection where Jesus is going to return and all the Christians that have died are going to come back to life. And this is where it gets confusing. And this is where we don't talk about this a lot in church. And this is where some of us start to feel like the sermon turns into a zombie movie. All the Christians of all time are coming back to life. Wait a second, what? But let's look at this passage. In chapter 15, let's just look briefly in this section, starting at verse 52, it says, for the trumpet will sound. This is in the future. This is a time that is unknown. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very common passage uh, that has been Maybe you've heard this before at a memorial or a funeral service. Death has been swallowed up. Death, where is your sting? But this is, a, this is a wild passage because as we look at this, what do we see? At any moment, Jesus is coming back. I remember as a kid hearing that, and that freaked me out. Any moment, any moment, right? Uh, uh, any time. And we don't know when that is. And guess what? Today, we're not going to theorize about when that is. I'm not going to try to give you my blueprint of when I think he's coming back. The other thing that we see here, death will be no more. How many of you say amen to that? Death will be no more. Jesus wins. Any amens to that? A few of us. Yes, Jesus wins. It says he will be the victor, right? He will give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in that same passage we read, it also says that the dead are coming back to life. It says that those that are living... The mortal will be given immortality. So some of us, if, if the timing is right, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but there will be people that are still alive when Jesus comes back, and they're going to be transformed into immortals. What? Dead people coming back to life. And some of us right now are sitting and listening to this, and we're thinking, yeah, but how? How is that going to happen? And guess what? That's a common question that comes up with this passage. But guess what? Paul even saw that question he knew that question was coming because he wrote it in verse 35. He said, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? So even Paul, 2,000 years ago, knew that this was going to stir some confusion in people, the Corinthian church, and then 
Even 2,000 years later, the church today. Wait a second. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How many of you, your brain goes there immediately, right? I say, the resurrection of the dead is going to happen. All Christians are going to be raised from the dead. And you're just like, yeah, but how? How are we going to do that, right? Some of us are dreamers. We think things, you know, I'm a dreamer at times. I dream things with my wife. Hey, we should go on a road trip next year and go drive to Niagara Falls. And she sits there, and she's the practical one, like some of you in the room, and go, how? How is this going to happen? Some of you are thinking, uh, Sean, I, I've lost count at the number of dead people over the 2,000 years that we're talking about and what their bodies have done decomposing in the ground. How is that going to happen? What about somebody that's been cremated? And I've heard Christians over the centuries have wrestled with this. I can't be cremated because the resurrection. How am I going to come back? I've got to be buried in the ground. And what if I'm buried above ground? What is that going to do? And, and we get all caught up in the how and the how and the when and the when. And, the, and, and our brains go, but these people, they're dead. They're long. I mean, it's been millennia, Sean. How are these dead people that follow Jesus coming back? How is he going to do that? It seems impossible. And I'm not going to get into the physiological way that God's going to do it because Paul doesn't get into that. But I heard a pastor talk about this passage, and he says, you know, I know that seems impossible for us that God would take dust, right, people that are buried in the ground and have become dirt, that he would take dirt and dust and make that into man, and we'd be resurrected. But, but I heard a pastor say, but how many of you have read Genesis chapter 2? At the creation of the earth and creation of the heavens and creation of man, how does God make man? He takes the dust of the earth and he forms it into the shape of a man and his spirit breathe, breathes life into it and he becomes animated. He comes to life. And I believe that. I believe that to be how God formed humanity. He took the dust and he breathed life into it. And if I believe Genesis chapter 2 I have to believe that God can still do the impossible thousands and thousands and millions of years later. I believe that God can do the impossible in the future. And, and it may not make sense to me, and again, we're not going to get into how do decomposing bodies become immortal bodies. How do physical bodies of today become transformed into something celestial? I'm not going to get into that today, but I'm, I'm, I'm challenging us to believe that God can do the impossible. And that our earthly body is going to be raised into something divine, something spiritual, something heavenly. And to help people understand this, Paul uses an analogy of a seed. In chapter 15, verses 36 through 44, he gives these, these analogies of using a seed. How many of you are gardeners in the house? Raise your hand. You love to plant things, right? You plant a seed. Well, Paul, you're going to relate to this. Those of us that don't have green thumbs and we kill plants, good luck. Paul uses plants as an analogy for our bodies going into the dirt and coming up as something divine. Look at this passage starting in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Verse 42. So will it be 
with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is imperishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown in a natural body and raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul is using this imagery of a seed to, to illustrate this complicated idea of, of our body, our, our perishable flesh going into the dirt, dead and buried. Just as a seed, when you take a seed, let's take a, a sunflower seed, because I know what that looks like. I've chewed a mini playing baseball. I know what a sunflower seed, everyone knows what a sunflower seed looks like. How many of you, when you look at a sunflower seed, you see bright golden petals? You see a beautiful green stem with leaves? You don't. You see this little gray and white and brown thing that you put in the dirt, and it's dead, and you bury it, and then it springs forth life. And it brings something new, something beautiful, something totally different. And that's what Paul is describing is that what goes into the dirt is going to be different from what comes out of the dirt. That at some point in the future, our bodies are going to come out of the dirt and they're going to look different. That's why he uses these, this idea. What goes, in imper what goes in perishable comes out imperishable. What goes in in weakness comes out in power. What goes in what dishonor comes out in glory. What went into the dirt is going to be different than what comes out of the dirt. And this isn't just for the pastors that get buried. It isn't just for the super Christians that get buried. It is for all of us. And Paul's going to continue to prove this point throughout this chapter. In verse 49, he says, And just as we have been born the likeness of the earthly man, that is Adam, just as we have been born in the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Who's the man from heaven? Say it real quick. Oh, say it with more confidence because it's an easy answer. Who is the man of heaven? Jesus. There it is. So we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul, to help us understand this, relates our identity back to Adam and then to Jesus. And he does this a lot throughout his writings in Romans and Corinthians, but he talks about the body of Adam was earthly. The man of earth, right? We have this likeness with Adam. Our bodies are broken and sinful and futile and temporary and fallible. How many of you would agree with that? Your body is fallible. Your body is futile. Your body is broken. If, yeah. I don't know why every hand isn't going up, but some of you got good health, I guess, and, and you've got good bodies. I don't know. But not everybody's body, or let me say that again, everybody's body is similar to Adam's in that it is earthly, it is broken, it is sinful, it is fallible, it is futile, it is temporary. But we will become like the body of Christ. We shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Our resurrected body is going to be like the man from heaven. And meaning, it is going to be eternal. It is going to be holy. It is going to be pure. It is going to be imperishable. And verse 50 is helping us see, man, that God is, his ultimate plan is to raise up his people, to raise up his followers, to raise up the saints. That's you and me. All of us are the saints. As followers of Christ, as Christians, we are the the, the family of God, he's going to resurrect his family into something eternal. And you combine that with what we see in something like Isaiah chapter 65. When Isaiah says that God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. 
In Revelation 21, when, when the apostle John has this revelation from God of what's going to come in the future, and he says that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's gonna create a new dwelling place for his people to be. And it's not going to be this earth that we see now, and it's not going to be our bodies that we see now. It is going to be something that is imperishable, something eternal, something holy, something pure, that God wants to spend eternity with his kids. That's us. And not in these temporary shells that we have and not on this broken earth that we live on right now. That's what Paul is getting at with the Corinthian church. And this is, this is the point in the sermon as we've been now processing this just for a few minutes now where some of you are saying, wow, Sean, you had a wild vacation. When are we passing the Kool-Aid? Because resurrection confusion is real. And when we hit this part, we begin to realize like this is complicated. And we don't talk like this a lot. Because... When we start hearing these things, you start thinking like, I think I saw this in a documentary and those people were crazy. And Paul's saying, I'm not crazy. We're not crazy. This is God's plan is that he wants to be with his family for all of eternity and he doesn't want it in a broken vessel. He wants it in something eternal and something holy and imperishable and, and, and pure. And the resurrection, as we see in this chapter, is something, it is not a topic that that Paul is saying, hey, I know this is confusing, so take it or leave it. This isn't like that potato salad at the potluck. Well, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if that's going to make me sick later. Some of us deal with these themes and these topics of resurrection. We're like, I don't know how that's going to sit with me. And Paul's saying, do not discard this just simply because it's confusing. Process it. Struggle with it. Grapple with it. Because it is essential to our beliefs. It is essential to our, 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 our theology and our understanding of church and the future of what God is doing. And he understands that people will struggle with it. 2,000 years ago, the early church in Corinth, in Corinth struggled with this. In 2022, the church today is still going to struggle with this. And we can wrap our brains around if I was up here saying there's a metaphorical resurrection. Some of you would be like, yeah, I'm on board with that. A spiritual resurrection. Yeah, sounds good. A physical resurrection. Hold up. That's weird. That doesn't make sense to me. That sounds like a movie that I saw with zombies. And so Paul begins to address this confusion that we do not discard this truth of the resurrection. And, and in, in verse 12, he begins to address some of their confusion because there were teachers and influencers of that time in Corinth and, and in Greece that were saying the resurrection isn't real. The future resurrection, that's folklore, that's mythology, that's not going to really happen. So Paul begins to address that in verse 12. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Just, just sit in that for a moment. If it's complicated for us to view this idea that you and I and the saints would come back to life, how can we believe that Jesus came back to life? The Easter resurrection, for, for many of us, we're like, yeah, I got on board with that. Jesus came back to life. He defeated the, 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 the tomb. He came back. 
apostles saw him, they touched his scars and all of this stuff. Like, I can get, get behind that. Uh, that church coming back to life millennia from now. I don't know about that, John. And Paul says, how can you believe in one resurrection but not the other? Why can you believe in that impossible act but not this impossible act? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there's not even Christ who has been raised. That's what Paul's saying. If Christ didn't come back from the dead, well, guess what, guys? That's the Jenga block that we pull and it comes tumbling down. Because if Jesus hasn't come back from the dead, then what are we doing? If I can't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, everything we're doing is for what? Look at this passage. I'm, I'm, how many of you feel like I'm a fire hose? I'm just going. But this is, this is firing me up, man. I'm excited. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, right? If I don't believe in the resurrection of the saints, how can we believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I don't see that one on Facebook a lot. Your preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Verse 17, and if God, or excuse me, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. That is not a fun passage of scripture. That is not one that people go and memorize a lot. But what Paul is getting at here is if you take away the resurrection of Jesus, then everything we're doing here is useless. Like I said, that's the Jenga block that if you pull that out, what are we doing? He uses the phrase useless. Your faith is useless. The preaching is useless. Our faith is futile. That word useless means empty and hollow and without content. It's like those Christmas gifts that some of you put under your tree that have nothing in them. Just to torment little children that come to your house around Christmas time. So they think, ooh, I'm getting something. And then they realize, oh no, that's just decor. Thanks a lot. You guys are just sadists that do that. You're just hurting little children's hopes. I was one of those kids at one point. You see all these presents and they open up, just hollow, just decor. Well, Paul's saying, without the resurrection, man, our, our church, uh, our, our faith, our, everything that we're doing is hollow. It's for appearance's sake. It's just to go through the motions. And basically what Paul is saying is, if we don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, then what are we doing here? Because if you take away the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, what are we doing? We are singing about a dead guy from 2,000 years ago that didn't come back. We are talking about ways that we can get better in our own strength, not by the power of God. We are talking about truth that seems good to us, but maybe just relevant to who says it, who listens, not the ultimate truth of God. So what Paul is saying is without the resurrection, man, we're all liars, we're all frauds, we're all futile, we're all empty, it's all useless, and we're just a bunch of nice people just hanging out. Drinking coffee, giving up our Sunday mornings. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the most catalytic moment in history, and it changes the course of history. And we believe the resurrection, and we need to believe in the resurrection of the saints. We need to believe in the resurrection of believers. Verse 20, Paul reiterates this idea. If we believe that Jesus came back from the dead, we believe that we will come back too. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. How many of you believe that today? Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And you see this, this terminology. When you go back and read this this week, you're going to see Paul talk about people that have fallen asleep. This is not a Sunday nap that he's talking about. He's using this as imagery, and Jesus used it as well. Uh, this is imagery for people that have died. The idea that they're only sleeping because their soul, their immaterial part of their being, their spirit is apart from the physical body. It is in the presence of God in paradise. But the imagery is that eventually they're going to wake back up. They're going to wake up in this new body. Now, how that's going to work and when and what's that all going to look like, we're not getting into that today. But what, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those that have died. And what is a first fruit? I don't hear that a lot. I don't go to Target and they say, pass me your first fruits. I don't go into little league practice or soccer practice and say, children, give me your first fruits. It's not a phrase that we hear a lot. What is first fruits? It's this religious terminology, but he's saying that Jesus is the first fruits of all who die. What does that mean? First fruits is this religious phrase about what is foreshadowing, a sampling. It is the first sample uh, of what is to come, what is more. There's this uh, scholar named William Barclay, and he took Leviticus 23, and he gave this exposition on what first fruits are, and, and he just says it so well. I, I'm going to read from it, uh, but he describes what a first fruit is. And when you hear that, church, that term in church, I want you to, to grasp that at, as we read what he's saying and how it ties to what Jesus is embodying as the first fruit of the resurrection to come. Look at this passage. Uh, of William Barclay's thoughts on first fruits. When the barley was cut, it was brought to the temple. This is back in the Levitical times of Leviticus chapter 23. They, when the barley was cut, it was brought to the temple. There it was threshed with soft canes so as not to bruise it. It was then parched over the fire in a perforated pan so that every grain was touched by the fire. And then it was exposed to the wind so that the chaff was blown away. And it was then ground in a barley mill. And the flour, it was offered to God. That was the first fruits. It was very significant to note that not until after that was done could the new barley be brought and sold in the shops and bread be made from the new flour. The first fruits were a sign of the harvest to come. And the resurrection of Jesus was a sign of the resurrection of all believers which was to come. I should just end right there. I mean, I should have just read that and got out of the way. That Jesus is the foreshadowing. He is the sample. They would take this barley and they would give the first part of it to the temple as an offering to God. 
And until they did that, they couldn't, I love that, they couldn't sell it in the shops. They couldn't make bread for themselves. They couldn't use it for any other purpose before they gave it to God. Well, Jesus is that first sampling of the resurrection power of God, the foreshadowing of what's going to come, the future harvest. As Paul says, so in Christ, all will be made alive. All will be made alive. Now, why is this important for us today? I'm gonna slow my pace for just a moment. Why is this important for us today? I got really excited about it. I kind of slipped into teacher mode, okay? Ephesians talks about some are preachers and teachers and shepherds and, and evangelists and things. I got into teacher mode there for, for a little bit. How, do, how is this relevant to us today? As I, as I thought about this this week, I don't just want to be a church that theorizes about what the future is and, and talks about what the future is, but we, we do have to keep our eye on the future because our view of tomorrow will affect how we engage with today. I'll say that again because that's the main concept and point of today. Our view of tomorrow will affect how we engage with today. And there's three ways that we can have our views uh, affected when we bring eternity into our field of vision. One of the ways, and Paul encourages them to, to, to be aware of this, is we can develop an apathy towards our world and towards today. Verse 32 through 34, look at Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Forget tomorrow. Forget today. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts, corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to shame you. What Paul is, is getting at here is this idea that we will disengage from today because we, we know that eternity is taken care of. And sometimes Christians can develop this mindset. Our view of eternity will affect how we engage today. And some of us will take our hands off the wheel, we'll take our foot off the throttle, and we'll just say, hey, I'm saved, my ticket is punched, God's got it, I'm coming back to life later, who cares about today? Let's do whatever we want. Let's let this place burn. I don't care if you're going to hell, I'm good. And we disengage, we disconnect, we become apathetic. God's making a new heaven and a new earth, so let's light this one up. Whatever we do doesn't matter anyways. So what do you want to do today? And that's not what Paul's getting at. He kind of takes him by the shoulder and says, I'm saying this to rattle your cage, to get your attention. Who are you listening to? Who are the influencers of your ideas on eternity and the resurrection? And I, I, as he challenges them to think about who they're listening to and who they give their attention to, right? Pay attention to who gets your attention. I think about this idea of why the resurrection, why eternity, why all of this stuff can be so confusing. Because how many of us would agree our views on heaven and eternity and hell and judgment and the future are based on pop culture? That when I die, I'm just going to go be a little angel sitting with a toga and a cloud playing a harp. 
Like that's our view of, of heaven. That's our view of eternity. Like the lights go out, I'm done. I'm out of control. And they're like, that's it. Movies, literature, whether it's Christian or non-Christian and secular, it doesn't, you know, all of it is just trying to form ideas and form opinions. And I think Paul is just saying like, hey, pay attention to, to what you believe and, and who's influencing what you believe. Pay attention to that because your views on tomorrow will affect how you engage today. Don't become apathetic. Don't let off the throttle. But I also think that we can allow our circumstances to become consuming, right? Our view of eternity will affect how we engage today. How many of you sometimes would agree that sometimes the circumstances of today will shake your world? The circumstances of today can shake it up, can gain control. He says, therefore, dear brothers, in verse 58, therefore, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. See, some of us become apathetic about our world today, but others become all consumed by it. The stresses, the worries, the deadlines, the finances, the things that we have to do, our task lists, our futures, our fears, our insecurities, all of it mounts and mounts and mounts, and then we go through each day with such a tight, white-knuckled grip, and we become consumed by it. We become consumed by what people said and what people thought. We become consumed by our failures and our mistakes. We become consumed by the things that we have to get done and the things that we haven't done and our inadequacies. And it becomes all-consuming. And what Paul says right here to the Corinthian churches, stand firm. Don't be shaken. Don't be rattled. Don't be consumed by the fear of death or your finances or feel like you got to give up. Because there's times where our engagement with today, we'll, we'll want to just... I want to give up, God. It's not going to plan. I didn't write this in my script. But when, and here's, here's the reality that I've discovered. When I keep eternity in my field of vision, it affects the way that I view the stresses of today. That I, I'm able to take a deep breath and say, okay, it's all right if that task list remains undone a little bit more. It's okay if I'm not as financially secure as I thought I would be at this point in my life. It's okay if I get an unhealthy diagnosis from my doctor. It's okay if things don't go according to plan because I know what my future looks like. I know God's got the future in his grip and in his plan and in his control and I know that eventually my future is going to be spending eternity in the presence of God forever. And in the scope of that eternity, some of the stuff that I stress and worry and fret and become consumed by today isn't as big of a deal. Isn't insurmountable. It isn't impossible. You see how our view of tomorrow can affect the way that we engage today? We become apathetic towards it. We become consumed by it. And I believe lastly, Paul, in, in his writings here in verse 58, the last little punch of how we can engage today is he wants us to not neglect it. Don't become consumed by it. Don't be ne uh, neglectful of today, but to live as resurrected people and as future resurrected people. Verse 58, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This encourages me to 
not become apathetic, to not become consumed by it, but to engage as a person who has been resurrected in Christ, as a person who will be resurrected in Christ. We worship a God who brings life. Right? We worship a God who brings life. And, and, and I may not be in my celestial, heavenly, future, resurrected body yet. It is still very futile, very broken, infallible, very temporary. But I believe I've seen God bring to life in me spiritually, emotionally, relationally, mentally, areas of my life that were dead, areas of my life that were broken and hopeless. And so we are resurrected for today and for tomorrow. And, and here's the thought. We need to live as resurrected people. We need to live as people who follow a God who brings life. And too many Christians are walking around taking life, consuming life, diminishing life, hurting people with their words and their social media and their emails and their texts and their phone calls and they're just the, the, the general vibe that they give out is not as resurrected people. We sometimes still live as people who are dead and in the tomb. Christ has brought you to life and he will bring you to life. So wherever you go, whatever you say, whoever you interact with, God wants to bring resurrection to that area. He wants to bring resurrection to you. He wants to bring resurrection to your home. How many of you want to see life in your home? I saw that hand, hallelujah. Let me ask that again. How many of you want to see resurrection in your home? You want to see life? You want to see resurrection in your marriages? You want to see resurrection in your kids or your grandkids or your roommates? You want to see resurrection in your schools, those of you that are in school? You want to see life in your community? How many of you want to see life in Skagit Valley? There's a few hands. There's a few so wherever God puts us, wherever God leads us this week, go live as a resurrected person. Go live as somebody who follows a life-giving God. That's what Paul is getting at. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Live engaged, dialed in. Live as a resurrected person. Don't let off the throttle. Don't become apathetic. Don't become too consumed and worried about it. But just find that moderation. Find that spot where, man, I live on purpose. I live as a resurrected person because resurrection is essential to Paul. The resurrection of today and the resurrection of tomorrow. Jesus resurrects us for life, both tomorrow and for today. How many of you can believe that? Jesus resurrects us for life today and for tomorrow. Or as the slide says, for tomorrow and for today. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you right now in this moment. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you begin and continue to, to bring clarity. Holy Spirit, you're referred to as the spirit of truth. And I pray in the midst of us processing and digesting these, these verses and this passage of scripture and your truth, that it, it begins to make more sense than it did when we first walked in. We want to be people who understand who you are and your truth that you have for us. We want to be people who bring life to this world and to the people that we come in contact with. We want to experience life today, and we want to experience and have hope for the life that you have for us in the future. 
Church, I want to give opportunity for anyone to respond. We're not looking around, and you can just close your eyes for a second and give opportunity for anybody that wants to say yes to following Jesus, maybe for the first time, or the first time in a long time. You haven't made that commitment before or in a long time. But what we're talking about is following Jesus brings life. And it's not by what you do, and it's not by coming to church enough, and it's not by reading your Bible enough. It's about believing that Jesus came to die in your place because he loves you. If you want to say yes to following Jesus today, would you raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. I want to give you that opportunity if there's anybody that just feels like today, man, I, I want to say yes to Jesus. I don't have all the answers. I still got a lot of questions. But if that's you today, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, be the king of our life. Be the king of our life. Meaning you are the ultimate authority. You're the one in charge. You're the one leading us, guiding us. You're the one that we follow. Forgive us of our sins and our brokenness and our mistakes of the past. And give us a fresh start today. Jesus, we believe that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead and you are bringing your church to life both today and in the future tomorrow. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.